0: Welcome to the Biocharisma Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. Today, we have Dr. Andrew Kaufman. I first became aware of Dr. Andrew Kaufman a few years ago where he was on a panel with Dr. Cowan. They're both dookies, both Blue Devils. And uh, they were making a very, very wonderful inquiry into how um, essentially experimentation has been done in the in the allopathic world of uh, vaccination and vaccination science. And I was very impressed. There seemed to be the whole real process of um, correct grammar, correct uh, logic and correct rhetoric, the 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 three branches of the trivium. And I really appreciated the the systematic way in which he was going into thinking about experimentation. And as a builder, as an inventor, uh, it all comes down to results. Like if, if you're building something, you're constructing something. Does it stand? Can it withstand the test of time? Does it have the capacity to handle stresses and loads? And these are all things that there's an experimental process that occurs that, you know, then you end up with a resultant and listening to Dr. Andrew Kaufman and Dr. Cowan that day I was like okay this is actually this is going from the anecdotal realm and then it it it's it's going from the propaganda realm and it's reducing it all back down to logic and as you'll hear in this conversation that we have um, you can see how Dr. Kaufman's mind works, and I really appreciate his process that he goes through. We uh, touch on a bunch of things, everything from the flow state being in the zone to the Yerkesi's Dotson curve, uh, even what it's like to be a Roomba for the UN, and you'll get to hear what that means. <laughs> um, Dr. Kaufman, you'll be able to see all of his connections in the show notes. He's wonderful to listen to. Uh, as of late, he's ventured into the, the realms of looking at banking, finance, and law. So <clears throat> this was a nice uh, touch-up for me in, in hearing how there's so many people that once you like start to peel the onion, you always end up getting to the law, no matter what, and uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing to behold. So enjoy this podcast with Dr. Kaufman, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Biocharisma podcast. Dr. Andrew Kaufman is with us. Dr. Kaufman, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm wonderful. You told me to call you Andy, so I'm going to call you Andy. And I, I have to give you a little, a little uh, sentiment. You've been a favorite of mine because I grew up a Blue Devil fan, and, <laughs> and years ago, my mom, my mom's a Dukey, and so I always grew up with like Duke. Duke in the background of my consciousness. She was, she was very proud to be a Dukey, So I just want to let you know, between you and Dr. Cowan, I got, I got, I got all this Duke around me.
1: <laughs> well, it was, it was definitely an interesting place to, uh, to practice medicine, uh, that's for sure. And I did um, uh, interact with the psychiatrist who was actually the team uh, doctor for the basketball team.
0: Great. Was it was it sports psychology that he was into, or was it psychology? psychology? Well,
1: I think he was he was a pretty um, renowned psychiatrist. He used to be the chairman of the department, and he was like a professor emeritus. Uh, so he stepped into that role as like you know the high level senior guy. It wasn't a focus of his career mm-hmm. necessarily, but the the issues weren't really performance psychology that he was dealing with. It was. Mostly, uh, sort of dealing with uh, parents that were disappointed their sons weren't getting enough um, time on the court. Yes, yes, <laughs> and things like that, um, and you know, maybe just dealing with the pressure of uh, being on a you know Division One uh, team uh, at the same time when you're trying to, you know, complete college. So. We we have yeah, a but but you know Christopher I did study performance psychi- psychology uh, for a little while I was uh, thinking of trying to work with professional race car drivers. Oh wow! Yeah, and I actually did give some lectures at some driving events, and um, I studied with uh, uh, the leading guy in that arena, um, Jacques Dallaire is his name. So I, I actually went to the Charlotte Motor Speedway spent a day with him. He went through his, uh, techniques and approaches, uh, to, to the coaching. And, uh, it was a pretty fascinating stuff. That's wonderful.
0: Um, I've always been very interested in sports psychology. Uh, I played college football at Michigan state under Nick Saban and I was a field goal kicker. And so, uh, we had sports psychologists, like it was like a mandatory thing for us to go to. And so I was, uh, I think it's called Jacobson's relaxation technique where you like start in your toes and you take a deep breath and you relax and you work your way progressively up through the body. And I was like- uh,
1: Progressive muscle relaxation.
0: Yes. And I did that as a 19 year old kid. I'd never done any type of uh, meditation knowingly. And by the end of that whole process, I was like a new person like all the tension that was in my body. And I didn't know anything about pranayama. I knew nothing about yoga at the time. So this was like one of these like really cool ways that uh, at least at my university, it, it, it put me in a state of more of a, I guess you would say a surrender state. I, would, I don't know what that would be from a brainwave perspective.
1: But, well, you know, I can, I can uh, conceptualize it for you. And actually, uh, you know, you're right on the money. Because when I started reading performance psychology books, and this started even before I was interested in that coaching, uh, it was when I was playing a lot of tennis, uh, which mm-hmm. was in, in my residency when I was at Duke. So I was trying to improve my singles tennis performance. And I realized that Essentially, it was like a Western approach to meditation because the you know hyper arousal, too much anxiety, uh, too much you know negative thinking when you make a mistake interferes with your ability to focus. And there's something called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, and this is uh, something you can look up. It's uh, some Harvard physiologists came up with this um, around the turn of the 20th century. And it's a relationship between what they call arousal, right, uh, or level of stimulation. And, you know, when, that, when that's zero, it's like you're asleep. And then as it increases, it's plotted versus performance. And performance increases, right, with your arousal up to a point. And beyond that point, right, where there's excitement, uh, nervousness, and then, you know, fear, anxiety, and those things as you keep going up, then the performance trails off. And one of the reasons for that is is the ability to focus and concentrate on a single task. But, you know, so what you were learning was a way to get you from that point of being too stimulated to get back down into that optimal performance zone. And that's really what performance psychology coaching is mostly about. I mean, there's a little bit more to it because there are different types of techniques that you can implement to to optimize your focus, but really it's about Getting that level of arousal in the right zone and almost all uh, Performance athletes uh, their problem is that they're over aroused rather than under (laughs) under aroused So so that's like a very good insight and that that's a way to kind of think about it And you know one of the most important lessons I learned from that but many people would might argue that this is not true because of the modern term of multitasking. But really, you know, the truth is, you can only focus your attention on one task at a time. And and so this can be complicated when you're doing a sport because you might perceive that you have to do many things, um, but you certainly don't want to have your attention anything that's not in in the sport directly. So uh, if you are doing something that you call multitasking, which really, you know, the, the main cause is this, this thing here, this distracting device, right, that you're multitasking between this and something else. What happens is you're switching your attention back and forth, and anytime you switch your attention to the other task, you're gonna miss information at the first task. So you might perceive that it's an efficient way of getting things done, but actually it's, it's decreasing the quality of the performance um, in both tasks.
0: Would you say that there is an association between people that have a hyperactive mind and peak performers?
1: Well, yeah, because if the mind is too hyperactive, there probably is going to be deficits in performance.
0: Well, I've seen both. I've seen where the, so pretty much all, all the people, like the sports that I was most, mostly involved in were soccer, tennis, and football. Um, in tennis, the personality types seem to be very laid back our best players, like I played on a state championship tennis team in Florida. We were a three-time state champion at plantation high school. We had a, we had a juggernaut, um, tennis program and I played number two doubles on that, but all of the guys that were ahead of me, I was number six in the lineup. They were all chill, (laughs) They had the the guy competitive thing that you have when you're in high school, you know. But it was it was nothing like the hyper um, the hyper violence that you experience in football. Kind of bred that type of personality amongst the high performers in in that particular sport.
1: Right. And then in well, some, you know, there, there, I can uh, like uh, explain a couple of things about this because, like, if you. Right. So we're, we're talking about an extension of where we just were, right, that most people get too aroused. So that mm-hmm. more grounded uh, personality, and maybe that's something that they practiced also if they had a, a wise coach, um, right, that would keep them in the performance zone. Um, and But there's also guys like John McEnroe, right, mm-hmm. who is a very successful tennis player, and he, you know, clearly was keyed up, but... What the difference is is it only matters the level of arousal during the match play. Mm-hmm. So he could spout off between points, and I, you know, now looking back, I think that was more of a strategy actually to uh, throw off the concentration of his opponent. Mm-hmm. But he could turn it right back off during the point. Like you never saw him really express anger during the match play. Like his performance didn't suffer. Right? It. it it's like mm-hmm. he he. I think brought out more mistakes in his opponent, and that's why he was so successful, right? So some people have the ability to turn it on and off, but in football, you know, that's an interesting example because you have very different types of performances from people at different positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, you know, I was playing um, uh, guard and tight end in high school, and mm-hmm. the mentality of the line was like all about getting hyped up, right, so you can smash uh, the guy into the ground in front right. of you. Um, but they, they had a really hard time just remembering what to do on different plays.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if you're in the, you know, position of running back or quarterback or wide receiver, right. You have a lot more intellectual tasks, decisions to make, um, et cetera, like that. A lot of different things that you're doing from play to play, you know, as a blocker, you're only doing a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. So It'd be more important to have the balanced right level of arousal in those positions, uh, whereas you know the guys on the line can be more hyped up. Same thing with uh, like the linebackers. You know they're often the most aroused guys. Definitely. Um, and, and you know they want to like jump over people, so definitely it, it works. It works for that.
0: Yeah. Um, so I guess I can refine my my question, my observation. I I was a field goal kicker so we were just like the assassins we were we were to be seen and not heard my personality type was one of being pretty loquacious and like just naturally being like a hype guy and so I would be put in leadership positions even as a kicker all the best kickers I met though in in college and the NFL camps those guys were all like really chill I I, I actually thought pretty much on the whole all the pro athletes i've ever known and i've had probably like four really good friends even into my adulthood that were pro athletes they're all very well-rounded beings like it's not like you know growing up in the 80s and 90s there was always this you know projection onto football players or athletes that we were like dumb jocks And that wasn't my experience, the higher and higher levels that I played at, that my experience was actually the contrary. These men were obviously physically developed, but their mind was much more developed than people gave them credit for. And because there was this body-mind balance, um, there was a, a certain level of proprioception and awareness of the environment that like the quote unquote, normal men that I would meet, like the men that were outside of that venue of sports did not
1: have. Right. And I really, you know, that makes sense because, you know, as you get up into higher levels of performance, the, the strategy and the situational awareness become more and more paramount, right? Because the level of uh, play and skill is higher. Yes. So, you know, it would make sense. And, you know, being the uh, field goal kicker, that that's possibly the most difficult uh, job in some respects on the football field, because you have to come in cold, you have, uh, you know, one shot. yes, And you know that if you miss it, right, everyone is going to be like, you're going (laughs) to be the cause of, uh, of the devastation. Yeah. Um, So that puts a lot of Pressure. It's like, you know, team sports are much easier on you psychologically because you can rely on your teammates to uh, boost you up and to take their share of responsibility. Like, if you know, if you're uh, some random player uh, on the field and you totally mess up a play, no one might not even notice it, mm-hmm. you know, except right. maybe the person you were supposed to uh, defend or get by. And, but if you're the field goal kicker, right, you, everybody is looking at you, uh, yes. you know, when you come out there. So, it, so it's a lot of pressure. It's more like an individual sport. It right? totally Same was. Thing, you know, with tennis, uh, you, you know, doubles still is more individual, but, you know, singles, it's, it's just you there. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no one else who's responsible for anything. So all the pressure's on you. And it would make sense. It would take someone who's capable of more composure in a mm-hmm. performance situation to be effective at that job and not, you know, screw up because they're they're too aroused.
0: Yeah, I it was framed for me one time which I thought was extremely effective that the field goal kicker is like an assassin. And I love that cuz the second I heard assassin, I was like, "Okay, you get the job done but you're not seen." Like you're you're not there for glory. Like, the, there. it's literally like, you have a function, you're usually, you're usually there, like, you only have the job for that function. There is no glory in it. Like,
1: nobody should ever know that you're the assassin. <laughs> and when I took that no, off... But, uh, there but there, there may be not as much glory, but if you miss the important field goal, there certainly will be lots of blame coming your way.
0: Oh, yeah. But that that I mean, like in life, if you're doing anything that's worth anything and you miss the mark, there's always going to be haters out there. You know, there's like I i, I was very lucky because I grew up in a way where my family God love my mother because she always supported uh, since I was five years old, like I would be the last kid to take the penalty shot in soccer. So my mother from age, you know, five to 23 was just biting her nails off because I was always the, the, the pressure situation person. And even in soccer as the striker, like I was the guy who scored the, the points. So like, if I don't score the points, we don't win that type of thing. So I, I just got used to at a very young age, having pressure situations and actually Maybe because I, I would have been termed uh, ADHD, I think, if they had the terminology in the 80s, because they thought I was either retarded or genius, <laughs> because my attention was very hard to be held, and I would get very bored. But I was extremely artistic, and I could learn whatever I wanted to learn. So I was more of like a right-brained in my body boy. Imagine that. Um, but the well, you know
1: the the. Um in the school uh, system, right? The um, yes, compulsive schooling, it it doesn't really allow children to develop normally. Like it doesn't tolerate normal development (laughs) um, because you know kids don't have the attention span that adults have, and and it varies. Like when they are interested in something um they have no problem with attention it's mm-hmm. when like you said they're bored or disinterested and you know this uh, it, when i was practicing you know regular psychiatry i saw tons of people who are diagnosed with adhd and and uh i would ask them well you know what do you do for fun and they'd be many of them video games and i said mm-hmm. well how long can you play a video game for and you know they'd be like two hours would be the answer mm-hmm. so they can sustain continuous attention for two hours on a video game that means their attention's normal Mm -hmm. but uh you know then when they're expected to you know be taught uh arithmetic or algebra uh, or you know some other thing with just rote facts without any meaning or passion and they are goofing off well then you know they they're said to have a mental uh, disorder rather than, you know, an inappropriate environment for their stage of development.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I coach so many kids where the parents were trying to tell me that the kid was ADHD, and I was like, no, <laughs> they're just bored to tears. That's all that's going on here. Uh, did you ever read Stephen Kotler's book uh, about raising Superman, like the the whole thing with being in the zone? Because um, the the book hypothesizes that being in pressure situations is one of the five factors that allows somebody to drop into what's quote unquote, the zone. What, what right, have like- you actually studied about the zone in, in your, in your profession?
1: Well, in, in my profession, right, it was only in psychiatry, I was speaking of, it was really only concerned with pathology. So, oh. uh, you know, now, of course, this did come up around uh, when I was studying uh, around uh, race driving and performance. Yes. Um, because I already realized, and I already knew this just from, you know, uh, the lay literature about flow states and, you know, being mm-hmm. in the zone, that this was what drew me to driving on to race car driving. Mm -hmm. You know, I just tried it, uh, because, you know, I, I got a sports car and the salesman suggested it. I didn't even know it was such a thing, right. That you could go and take your car and learn how to drive race cars and such. And what, what kind of car
0: did you get? I'm, I'm sort of a car guy or used to be.
1: Yeah. Well, the first car was a 911. Nice. So, you know, not, not too surprising. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, been a couple of Porsches and, uh, and most recently a BMW. M series. Yeah. An M
0: two. Nice. I hear that's a great hooligan car.
1: It's pretty fun.
0: Yeah, I bet (laughs) it can get loose. That's awesome. So, So
1: the, what I really enjoyed about that was, Getting in that flow state, you know, like I would be on the track for 30 minutes and then but you know when they finally uh, uh, Flagged us off. I would realize that I was about to pee my pants and I had you know, no idea Previously that that I had a full bladder Right, <laughs> right and it's because that the concentration was so singular in that flow state and it's it's so awesome to experience that state and be able to you know induce it on a regular basis Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like a magical, uh, experience in some ways. And that's really what drew me to it. Uh, so that's, you know, and, and of course, you know, there are certain things required to bring that out. So I think that's where you were going.
0: Definitely. Definitely. I forget all the different, uh, character, all the different, um, variables that Stephen Kotler brought up that would actually create the flow state, but I totally resonated with that book. I was just like, this is why I see so many former pro athletes either become entrepreneurs or get really depressed. Because <laughs> <laughs> as an entrepreneur, you're, 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 you're on, like you, you're on, you just have to be on. And there's this like, okay, like if this is going to happen, there's like a, a subtly induced pressure state where you're, you're never not working. Like, you can say you're not working. You can say, okay, this is this. But there's, because you're the one that's responsible, there's always this background, you know, uh, ticker tape that is, is running. And I mean, all my, all my, I, I shouldn't call them ex-pro athletes because they're all still extremely athletic. They're just older. They're all entrepreneurs. They're all still, right. they well, all.
1: You know, you're, really now getting into masculinity, right? Because uh, right. as men, it's our, you know, our life's purpose is to uh, work and achieve and contribute and create. Uh, you know, if you look around at all the infrastructure of society, right, it's uh, uh, pr- primarily the work of men. And that's mm-hmm. that's our uh, raison d'etre. So that doesn't end when your career ends. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe, you know, you might get to a point in your life, right, where you're Settled into a role of more like the the elder of the tribe, Mm -hmm. right? Where you're an advisor and such. But that's not really appropriated for in our Western culture, right? And we see people wither away at the end, men uh, as well, you kind of wither away in boredom and decadence or, you know, the recreation and premature uh, decay many a time. But it's, you know, an athlete often their career as an athlete ends. Uh, you know pretty early in their life and mm-hmm. uh, they still need to you know create and have that drive so mm-hmm. You know it totally makes sense and you know being an entrepreneur is um, a little bit easier for For former athletes because they you know have some resources uh, starting out um, And they also have probably have some connections and notoriety so it might be you know they have a uh, sort of hit the ground running and it makes sense for them to go that route but i i do know also that a lot of them get taken advantage of uh by uh you know shysters and sharks and uh end up uh having some failed businesses that is a fact
0: (laughs) i mean it'll and also being the more balanced of man like one that actually received usually if you had some sort of physical capacity and you were on a stage you were usually um seen as quite a catch and so you would you would be i guess you would say well well loved by the opposite sex and that would cause a greater um i guess you would say sense of self a greater like a more ripe ego and those Those individuals, the reason why I've gravitated towards them is because that more balanced masculine energy of just being like, not in fantasy land of things, but actually being like, no, I've actually applied my ability through discipline into a focus action that was in a performance-oriented way, and this is the resultant of it. So therefore, my self-expression is that of somebody that is very balanced and and wonderful. These men would have huge hearts, like they would they would have a big bigger heart per se than somebody that didn't receive that type of positive attention. And also, whenever you're in the spotlight, you're going to field arrows, you're going to field haters, you're gonna f- you're gonna field skeptics. Like I can only imagine somebody like you coming out a few years ago and like really questioning the whole the whole virus narrative like the amount of arrows what i'm trying to say is like the ego the the mature ego that you must have to be able to feel that type of detraction that can only only a very balanced very well i guess you say uh of an individual that has correct jurisdiction with their creator could actually field that type of onslaught.
1: Well, I'll agree that, um, you know, there's definitely resilience uh, required. I, you know, was very fortunate that the circumstances of, you know, my personal life uh, and my own individual development kind of led me to embark on a spiritual development path Mm -hmm. uh, just a a couple of years before, uh, you know, COVID struck. And I didn't realize at the time that I was preparing for something. Mm -hmm. um, But I, you know, just felt that I needed to address some issues and work on myself and become, you know, really to get on a path where I would continuously work on myself. You know, for the rest of my life, it's it's that kind of a commitment, and of course, I'm still uh, on that journey. But that led to me thinking about okay, talking about uh, medicine in a critical way publicly, and I knew that that would bring me the kind of scrutiny, you know, that you're hinting at. Now, of course, it was a much greater magnitude because of COVID, but I was prepared to experience at least some of that. And I did begin uh, speaking about these issues just a couple of months uh, before COVID actually, I put out some material about uh, vaccines and some material about cancer, uh, two of the most controversial uh, areas uh, in medicine to be critical of. Um, So I was just ready and expecting uh, that, type of adversity. Now, you know, I didn't experience the exploitation that professional athletes experience. So that, you know, could be another uh, factor to overcome, although there is some of it in, in the medical training. Uh, I don't think it's not to the same degree, uh, you know, as, as they experience. Christopher, you. I think you're mute. Thank you.
0: Um so I would actually like the audience to get a little background cuz I don't know how many of my how many of our viewers are going to actually know your background. Could you share with the audience what your I guess you would say your large overview of Let's just start with the the whole virus theory is and just give a little chronology of like when you started to speak out with the way you saw it and how you actually see it and how that actually progressed through the whole COVID
1: PSYOP. Sure. Well, um, for some of you who don't know, earlier in my career, I worked in cancer medicine as a physician assistant, and then I went to medical school and specialized in uh, psychiatry and forensic psychiatry but um, what happened was that I uh, originally um, I, I realized through observing the practice of medicine that patients really didn't get better with pharmaceuticals which was the primary intervention and someone suggested to me that I look uh, at this book by Kelly Brogan the mind of your own and it criticized psychiatry um, and was consistent with my opinion. And, but then it proposed you know, doing things like an elimination diet and coffee enemas as mm. a way to address health problems. And so I tried it with uh, a colleague of mine who was struggling with some anxiety and we both had an amazing experience just doing a 30-day elimination diet. And this kind of led me on a path to look outside um, conventional medicine and see what's out there. And in the midst of that, I came across uh, several things suggesting that uh, germ theory may not may not be fully true. Mm-hmm. One of those things uh, was actually uh, from um, the uh, Nobel Laureate who invented the PCR test, Kerry Mullis, where he told the story about not being able to find a scientific paper that proved the existence of HIV. And even when he went directly and asked Luc Montagnier, who was awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering HIV. (laughs) Uh, Even Dr. Montagnier couldn't just point him to a paper that clearly discovered the virus. Now, I didn't fully investigate that at the time, but there were a couple of hints like that. Another one was hearing Dr. Jennifer Daniels say that some illnesses uh, that were said to be caused by viruses like hepatitis C, that Koch's postulates were never established. Mm And Koch's postulates are just the way that you prove a so-called germ uh, results in a disease. So um, then I came across uh, Alpha Vedic. I know, you know you've interviewed uh, Mike and Bear uh, on mm-hmm. this show before, and they were talking about this book, um, uh, Pasteur and uh, Becham, uh mm-hmm. by Ethel D. Hume, uh, which uh, you know went more in, in to depth about, uh, you know, is germ theory true? And, you know, the battle between uh, uh, Pasteur and Claude Bernard and, and uh, et etc. And this was uh, in like early December, 2019. So right, you know, after uh, the first uh, news out of China, but before anything weird was happening in the West. And then as things got weird, um, I read Nancy Turner Banks' book, uh, Mm -hmm. AIDS, Opium, uh, Something in Empire. Yes. Sorry, I uh, forgot the title. Excellent book. Diamonds, yes, diamonds. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so it was just more about about HIV, of course. And then I went to look at the papers that alleged this new, you know, virus uh, causing a new disease, which uh, became later known as COVID 19. And I saw the same exact pattern that the scientific papers actually didn't didn't really show <laughs> the discovery of anything. Um, they showed some pictures of particles, but they couldn't really identify them. And the uh, so-called, what they call the virus isolation uh, study didn't really make sense um, that you could discover anything because uh, it wasn't really standardized or established that uh, you know that that could only be caused by viruses and they didn't even establish that there was a virus in the experiment mm-hmm. so it was all like you know degrees of separation and inference and a, a laboratory simulation of what they think was going on uh, without any real proof and you know I then began looking for a lot of other viruses and I went back you know all the way to the 1960s trying to see the first coronavirus that was ever allegedly discovered and uh, ultimately I learned that in every single case uh, they never proved any of these uh, disease-causing viruses really exist Mm -hmm. and they purposely didn't do the right experiment to discover them because when they back in like the 40s and 50s tried to do those experiments they didn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of um, used this vaccine manufacturing technique that uh, was awarded a Nobel Prize for polio vaccine, um, used that exact manufacturing technique to suddenly declare it also proved uh, the existence of viruses. And they've used that to fake every disease-causing virus um, since that time. And so I, uh, you know, I started talking about this uh, very early on in, um, Mm. you know, around the time of the pandemic announcement in March, a little before that in March of uh, 2020. And uh, it got me highly censored. It made me very controversial. And uh, definitely a lot of friends and colleagues parted ways with me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm kind of I mean, that's it's oil and water. Once you once you see it, you can never not see it. You know, I've known Dr. Daniels for close to ten years now, and she said something very profound when I was first talking to her. Sorry about my dog. Um, so the she said never. She she was actually talking to one of her other guests, and she said, um, "Don't ever puncture the epidermis." and with it, if there's any medical treatment where it's about puncturing the epidermis she was like that you can just you can just throw it right out and when i heard I that, that yeah and when it, as soon as i heard that it like had me think of all these times where a friend of mine's child would like get a cut like a like would get a puncture on a on a, a barbed wire fence and the puncture, they would go get a tetanus shot because of it. Where I've punctured my hands probably a thousand times with all the different construction things that I've done, and I've never taken a tetanus shot. But the kid that got the tetanus shot then got the, the quote unquote thing from being punctured. But it was the wrong puncture that people were paying attention to. <laughs> and then like all the all the different times because i moved to an area of central america for a, a long while because we were all wanting food sovereignty and wanting to do homeschooling and all this stuff and we thought we were all misinformed like costa rica is like the like the epicenter for everything that uh the un wants to run and the the amount of kids that i saw that had that were normal children that would get injected and then not be normal not have the vitality that they had before the i mean nobody could ever come to me and say that the injections had any like just the small little sample of children that i saw get absolutely polluted and corrupted by having their epidermis broken was unbelievable to me like the the ratio was so god-awful that i was like oh like there is no way if i ever have children i'm ever going to allow that to come close to them and so when covid struck or when we called it corona down there because corona is a spanish word for crown And I was always making the joke, oh, it's the crown, you know, because the the House of Windsor was, you know, uh, defaulting and all this other stuff. And I was like, ah, this is, you know, this is a financial thing. They're they're thinning the herd. And I've actually heard a bunch of your talks where I really would like to get into your your view of the financial world because I think you have such a balanced way of actually showing the the not so subtle thread behind what was known as Corona and the debt markets. Like I think I, I, in my system, in, in my being, I know they're one and the same. But that'd be fun for us for you specifically to explain how you actually see how those are connected. But before we get to that, just that whole thing in Costa Rica with people being injected, like in that in, in, in that part of Catholic Central America, it was like a 90% acceptance rate. I have 10 employees there. Seven of them were vaccine injured. Seven of them. Wow. And this is the thing. In, their, in the culture, it was so taboo to talk negatively, about the va- talk negatively about the vaccine. I was told not to tell any of my other employees. About the injuries about the injuries, they weren't sharing it with each other. I would have wow. their I would have their wives come to me and tell me. It was amazing, and I saw the whole thing. I saw the productivity, I saw the shift and pretty much the price of materials doubled, and then, like within eight or nine months, and then I saw the productivity get halved. Because you're dealing with so many people that were vaccine injured, and as an employer in a country like that, you could not, you had to pay them if they weren't working. And then you had to deal with the social stipulation that if you were to admit to other people that they had COVID, you would have to take, pull
1: your whole team
0: off the job. Does that make sense? Because there was so much there were so much You're no- they
1: couldn't differentiate between a uh, vaccine pathology and the, the covid infection
0: exactly exactly wow. you you say it so much clearer than i did cuz nobody got covid until they got the injections it's just like nobody gets tetanus until you get a shot for having t- getting getting tetanus like it was just like the, for me it's just a simple one to one it's like okay if you don't get this you don't exhibit the symptoms. If you do get this you exhibit the sy- symptoms. So what you, what punctured you from this man made whatever that's what's causing your problem. It's very simple, but the 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 program that was being run and I don't know what it was like in the states because I wasn't here, but And I don't have a TV. I would just have to listen to people about their interpretation of the propaganda was it was so taboo to even say anything negative about the vaccination because they just felt so lucky that they got to get the vaccination because they did the whole game of like, oh, there's not enough, you know, like the like the drug dealer just Yeah, the the false scarcity and like, okay, we just happened to find, you know, a few million shots for you guys. And then they're all proud that they got it. And it was just, it was insanity. Like it was, I never thought I was going to leave Costa Rica till that. Like I I thought I was going to be a lifer down there. But after seeing how that one PSYOP completely destroyed the any, any social equity that you could have with a person if you didn't agree with the the state's mandate of being having your epidermis broken, being jabbed. Like you could have employed them, given profit sharing to them, given them loans, you know, paid for their kids to go to school. None of that mattered if you didn't agree with the Jap.
1: Right. So, you know, you, it makes you see exactly how a society could become, you know, completely uh, totalitarian almost overnight. It, that,
0: it broke my heart because that was the thing was the heart was like my experience Costa Rica. Like it's a third world country. It's banana Republic, but at least everybody like kind of cared for each other if like you joked right. well, around look
1: there's some unique things about costa rica right i mean uh they have uh, the highest literacy rate right they're very friendly people they, yes they don't have the kind of crime that other uh, central american countries have yes so you know there's not uh as much poverty right so mm-hmm. there's there's good things but uh you know as you said right the globalists have infiltrated mm-hmm. and um you know things are not uh not so great now
0: yeah it was just amazing for my wife and I to watch the transition and we were having our child during that whole period and like they had the vaccination police like they literally like Costa Rica was the first country to say you know five years old and younger should get the should get the the COVID jab like it was just there was such an absurdity. Like they, they will drive around in these little motorcycles with three people. There's like one cop, a social worker, and then the person to administer the shot. And the, the social programming of the COVID was that it was so contagious that having anyone in your community that didn't get the vaccination was now the vector for
1: everybody's sickness. It was wild. Yeah, it certainly wasn't uh, like that in the United States, and I no. hope it uh, never could be. Yeah, uh, but uh, that is uh, very scary.
0: Yeah. Well, so th- this leads me to a question because I've talked with the, to Dr. Cowan about this, I talked to Dr. Daniels about this, Dr. Nancy Banks about this. Is like, so there's the big question about terrain. And what is the terrain? What actually causes some of these symptoms that we actually experience? And I would love to have your view on, because there's very specific things that people have that they can say, okay, I was exposed to X and this Y resultant happened. And now that Y resultant is always with me. And I would like to know, like, from your, from your framework without how our biology actually works, what is actually going on there? Is there a psychosomatic reaction? Is there an actual disease
1: state? Like, w- what is happening with our biology? I mean, are you talking about what's going on with people's perceptions of, of their health? Or are you talking about what, what really causes illness? Uh...
0: Well, this is a good refinement. Okay, so I'm a massage therapist. That's been my longest-held job. In that field, I'm dealing with people's epidermis <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm a, a, essentially manipulating people with very little cl- clothes on. Okay, so there's different skin conditions that people have and feel feel whatever they feel about it. In my own consciousness, I don't believe in any of this. Like, uh, I can get the cooties from somebody. Like, I don't, I have never had that in my consciousness. So, I did actually have it in a very odd way in the late 80s with the whole AIDS thing before I was even sexually active because there was so much going on in school about, ooh, AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. But like, as I grew up and stuff like that, and in my exposure to life, I was just like, there's nothing to be scared of here. So, but I deal with clients that will tell me emphatically, and you're right to bring up, to bring up the refinement that you do. I was exposed to this, and now I have this, and it's been that way ever since. And it will show up on the skin or I'll show up in the gums or I'll show up in the hair and it's it's cyclical. And I'll bring up the things because of my framework of being like, oh, is this psychosomatic? or Is this something that you expected? Is there is your body purging? Have you ever had a trauma in that specific area? And this is your body's way of releasing toxins. I bring up those things because that's my framework. I would like to know from from your perspective when it comes to and when I say disease states, I'm just saying like non-optimal, like the.
1: So this would you know kind of be like, oh, I I had a new girlfriend, we were you know sleeping like do- like uh, rabbits, and then I boom, I got herpes. I never had it before. Precisely. Right. So you know, th- there's basically uh, a combination of um, indoctrination about sickness that we get from you know almost infancy with logical errors errors of reasoning uh, that brings about those conclusions Um, and there's not really direct evidence so for example i mean all of the um, scientific studies that attempted to demonstrate contagion Mm -hmm. right through transfer of some bodily agent uh, have all come up empty, mm-hmm. right? So the, when you take one individual, you, you can't tell for sure what's going on. You always have to look at groups and compare uh, you know, a control group uh, where the independent variable is missing, right? So where, mm-hmm. there is no, where there is no germ. In fact, there was one study looking at colds uh, where they took the snot from people with a cold um, and put it in a nasal spray and sprayed it up the nose of some healthy people. Mm -hmm. And the other healthy people, they sprayed saline. And a few people in each group got colds, but actually there were more colds in the people that got saline squirted up their nose. Mm -hmm. So we could tell right there that, oh, if they didn't get sick from a virus being passed, they got sick from the process of squirting stuff in their nose. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we can understand that. So you know, once that tells us there was no contagion, um, going on uh, in that study, and all the other studies also, you know, came up empty. So, if we look at this one particular situation, uh, the person believes, you know, that that they got this virus, but did they actually see the virus in their partner's body? Did they see it go into their body? Did they even see fluid? Like, did one of the did a herpes blister? bust open on you know on their new partner and and they felt a a puddle and said you know oh my god you got your herpes juice on me right they they never had most likely didn't have that experience or any other experience right they just are basically were told that herpes is caused by a virus and it's sexually transmitted without ever evaluating the evidence for that And then when they got it, they, of course, applied that knowledge, even though it was actually incorrect, to their situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Not realizing that other things can happen uh, during sex. Like one thing is that that there's trauma that occurs. And Mm -hmm. uh, this may be increased if uh, they're using contraception, for example, which might decrease uh, secretions. Uh, or if there's um, uh, the man is circumcised, then there's more friction uh, during intercourse, so there's more trauma. And it could just be that their own body responds to the trauma and their body's very toxic and it brings toxins to the site of the trauma and, and it causes a skin breakout. Mm-hmm. Um, that has nothing to do with the virus, but it uh, completely fits the scenario. Now, I don't know if that's true either, but I do know that... Um, secretions in semen for example have been looked at for toxic chemicals and there have been uh some studies that have found something like 400 man-made chemicals in semen oh wow so if you're you know injecting a bunch of chemicals into your sexual partner mm-hmm. um that that could cause some irritation and and it could cause you know sign of an illness
0: Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. I never thought of that as that, that being a, like a concentration of toxicity. Because I've noticed that a lot. Like it's very obvious when you're doing body work on somebody, especially any myofascial work, wherever there, there has been like a deep contusion or wherever, like say somebody got shot or a deep puncture, some sort of wound that, that broke through the fascia the fascia will hold like it will hold a at an actual different charge than than the surrounding areas and it will actually it's almost like that charge the the difference in polarity will pull will always cause like an extra attraction like an extra flow of energy to that area that's one of the things i've appreciated about a few of your videos, too, where you've brought up how inflammation is actually the healing aspect of the body, because there's so many people out there believe, like, oh, inflammation is the enemy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, you got to understand, it inflames because it's trying to right. protect that area. It's I very mean, much-
1: the, you know, this, this kind of goes back to uh, terrain medicine, right, which right. is kind of a broad uh, term. It's not a specific theory. Mm-hmm. But it, it's kind of like, let's just look at how nature works. There are certain truths about nature. And one thing we can always observe in nature is that nature always is trying to achieve balance. Yes. It's always trying to restore balance, right? And the same thing is true if we look at the nature inside our bodies. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what does inflammation do, right? It, it increases the blood flow to an area of the body. So that means it's bringing more nutritional elements, more helper cells, uh, more functionality to allow that area to repair. Mm-hmm. And it's also, um, you know, causing the waste to be taken away, right? Because the it generally pro- produces swelling, uh, which is infiltration with liquid, right? With water or extracellular mm-hmm. fluid. And that Uh, dissolves the waste products and poisons that are there and then it gets taken up in the lymph and the venous system for removal Mm -hmm. from the body and now what I think people get confused about is that we often don't realize what's going on with our bodies and we do things that interfere with the healing like we suppress the healing for example or we're um, Malnourished in the particular uh, raw materials that our body needs to fully repair the the healing process, um, mm-hmm. or or other things like we maybe we keep um, doing the thing that's causing the problem in the first place, and the body can never overcome uh, our constant uh, injury. You know, mm-hmm. uh, by maybe uh, eating the same kind of uh, poison junk food, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, And so the inflammation doesn't resolve. It can't complete its job and gets put in this chronic um, state. And that's what people, you know, don't want. Right. (laughs) And so they're, but they're, what they're willing to do is use pharmaceuticals that shut down that healing process and suppress it. And even antibiotics, uh, by the way, this is probably one of the main mechanisms that they make your symptoms resolve is that they just turn off the healing, uh, turn off the inflammation. Right. Um, but that, but that is counterproductive because it, it interrupts the healing process. And what we should instead think about doing is try to discover what's keeping our body from completing this healing. You mm-hmm. know, what is it that we're doing? It's always something we're doing. We're, we're usually not aware that we're doing it, um, you know, but we are, and then we can a- a adopt some simple principles, uh, t- you know, like the, the most simple and natural way to help the body overcome a situation like this is, is fasting. Yes. Right. Uh, cause fasting takes away all the inputs, uh, other than water to the body. It's important to drink water while you fast. Um, and it allows the body to use all of its energy, um, uh, to focus on completion of the healing. Now, it may not be perfect for every single situation. Uh, if there's substantial malnourishment, obviously it does, it's not going to make up for that. But in most cases, um, it will result in um, the inflammation being able to resolve
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I've had miraculous things occur with fasting in my own in my own system and for many, many people that I've known and um whenever I want to get my body right or anything like that, if I just do like an intermittent fasting of just like
1: carbohydrates,
0: um, for the most part, that's
1: not, that's not fasting.
0: (laughs) No, I understand that. uh,
1: that, I call that intermittent eating. (laughs) Because fasting is not eating. Right. So unless you're not eating for, you know, 24 hours or longer, it's not, it's not really a fast. Now there is, there may be health benefit to, to, You know this intermittent eating pattern Mm -hmm. um because you know your body when you when you're constantly like the grazing pattern that's often uh promoted by some groups is very counterproductive because you know it takes a lot of energy for your body to digest food yes and when it has to keep the digestion going the whole day long right that means it's it it can't do any other functions So having limiting the time that your body has to do digestion um, is very helpful to allow it to do those other uh, functions.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. But what I was trying to say is like, if I'm ever trying to like prep myself for like a big purge, like a big fast, I do the intermittent fasting to kind of do the caloric reduction aspect of it and to get my Mm -hmm. body to break my body of the carbohydrate addiction cuz my particular in my system I I can get addicted to carbohydrates pretty quickly. When I break that and then I haven't done probably a 3-day dry fast in like god it's been it's been a minute since I've done like a 3-day dry fast. But um when I have done that it's been remarkable for my system. Almost any aches and pains I have it all goes away. All the all the excess inflammation in the system just it all just drops. It's it's pretty wonderful, and it's you know to me that's just a sign of how divine we're created. It's like when you stop polluting the system, like when you just stop, you know the the genius of our of our biology just takes over, and uh, it, everything you go into autophagy, it just everything cleans itself and and you become a much higher aspect of self
1: right no it can be very powerful i would of course uh, caution people about dry fasting that um, definitely don't attempt that unless you know that you're in a very well hydrated state to begin with like mm-hmm. this is you know animals can uh, do this because they uh, maintain a very good level of hydration um, overall but in our modern culture um, almost everyone i work with is is dehydrated so make yes. sure you're you know, correct that first. And then, you know, I personally don't recommend uh, dry fasting, uh, but it is important uh, to um, drink water properly during a fast because the main, you know, justifications or reasons in support of dry fasting that I've heard from some other folks before, and you know, you may have a different opinion, of course, is that, you know, one, if you drink water, it can initiate uh, digestion so that is true but you can prevent that by by limiting yourself to one cup or eight ounces uh per 30 minutes mm-hmm. because it, there's a certain volume required to expand your stomach that will initiate digestion and it's a bit higher than that so you safe uh from doing that uh for example um, during a during a fast if you if you drink the water appropriately
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah i should have been like i've I've only done one three-day dry fast. Most of my fast I've actually used. I've u- drank water through the fast. So, what I'm just trying to say is that I do agree overall with fasting as being one of the more curative states you can put yourself in. Um, we oh, had yeah, ske- yeah.
1: There's uh, plenty of evidence. We had
0: Sorry. scheduled. We had scheduled for an hour. Do you have a little bit more time? Because I would love to get into what you're actually what you're up to at this particular moment and what you'd like to share specifically with, with my audience.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I could go for like another, uh, 10 minutes or so. Great.
0: Great. So w- what are you digging into at the moment that just has you
1: all excited? Well, I mean, I'm digging in always to more than one thing at a time. I mean, I have, uh, two presentations I'm giving this week, but, what I'm really most lit up about, uh, to be honest with you is, uh, law and finance and banking. Nice. And, um, you know, it's just, I've been interested in law for quite a while. That's why I went into forensic psychiatry. Um, but, uh, I've been studying, you know, independently and with some teachers and courses over the past uh, few years. And, you know, it's related to the topic you brought up earlier about the financial system. And mm-hmm. because we essentially are are part of this uh, crazy um, system of uh, currency, finance, banking uh, etc et that is um, you know not what they teach in schools. it's not what the financial pundits uh, say how it works. like almost no one understands really how this system works. Um, but essentially it has got you uh, being you know, what, what you could call a debt slave. Mm-hmm. And, um, so understanding how to get out of that or how, how that came about, um, how it affects you in your life and then how to get out of it and, and actually behave like a, a true, you know, man living man that, that you were meant to, um, is, is what I, uh, have been spending most of my time, um, uh, learning and practicing
0: that's wonderful that's wonderful I believe um, you know I've been I've been in the empower movement for a couple years like I've been subscribed to their to their uh, information I've been I've loved Cal Washington I, I was
1: just at an event um, with uh, the the principal uh, over there at empower um, I don't know why his name's escaping me but, but David I actually helped no, not David.
0: Oh, because David's the back of the house. He does all the the web design and all that um, for them.
1: I want to say, oh, I want to say Cliff or Clive or something like that. Okay. I've got a picture with him. Yeah, <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm so sorry uh, that I am blanking on your name. If you ever see this, uh, but but I actually helped pr- with uh, some of the research on the the vaccine. Um, uh, notice of liability.
0: Oh, wonderful. Uh, power. That's um, excellent. Do you have any case studies of where people have actually been able to use that in the United States and have some effectiveness with it?
1: Well, I, I don't, but, uh, but he does, uh, okay. so he gave the, um, you know, kind of an update at this, uh, event we were at in Florida that, uh, Jim Gale put on, mm-hmm. um, and it's some pretty incredible results. In fact, they think that uh rochelle uh, walensky the director of the cdc resigned because of the nol that they sent her nice (laughs) because of the the uh the timing of her resignation Mm -hmm. Um, and they've had several other uh public officials and uh um ceos step down as a result of uh receiving a number of notices Mm-hmm. From them, um, so I think it's quite effective, and I'm really excited that they're actually developing one for um, the geoengineering, um, you know, cloud uh, seeding, chemtrail uh, operations. Mm-hmm.
0: That'd be wonderful. Because do we do we even know who to actually send the NOL to? Is it uh, well? Is it...
1: That that's part of the work. I actually uh, talked to him a little bit about this um, because you know. For a while, I was only aware of of, uh, a couple of the, you know, activist groups that are prominent on the Internet and didn't realize that it was really quite simple to find out how this whole operation works, because if you just go on any search engine and put in cloud seeding companies, Mm -hmm. you're going to find just pages of private companies Mm -hmm. that have aircraft and have that's modified to spray this stuff. And they essentially brag about, um, you know, that they have the best uh, methods and the best equipment mm-hmm. to do this. Um, so so what must happen is that the government contracts out to these companies. And so it's a matter of finding uh, which contractors are, you know, doing it in your area. And so that's part of the uh, process that they're doing. So they've been trying to organize people that are on this team in different geographic areas to identify the companies. Now, there's um, a woman, a formal, former mayor of uh, uh, Las Vegas, California. Uh, Renette Senem is her name. And uh, she was able to identify the uh, companies that were doing this in her area of California and actually has a lawsuit seeking injunctive relief um, uh, against them, and uh, that's ongoing. So that, that's, of course a more conventional strategy. You know, she has attorneys and such, uh, which is you know different from the kind of law process that I'm studying mm-hmm. um, where I would you know take action myself um, rather than, than hire attorneys or go a traditional route. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, I think it's a very admirable action. I, I hope that she's successful, but you know, you can definitely do this uh, mm-hmm. if you put in the time um, and effort. And uh, you know, I've thought of I, I'd like to do this in my area if I can carve out some time. I even thought about you know going around to uh, the airport and snooping around and see if I can find you know where the where the planes are leaving from and you know that kind of thing, and uh, find out find out exactly who's doing it.
0: That'd be wonderful. That's more my wife's speed is to sue them directly. <laughs> <laughs> the the NOL thing isn't her bag, but to like actually like oh you're doing this I'm you're going to get my own notice here. Um, well, you know,
1: the notice of liability is a perfectly, uh, you know, legal. Uh, it's a, con- a self executing contract that the, now they do it the proper way in making it a self executing contract. I've seen many other uh, NOLs written by a variety of folks that were uh, really nothing more than a letter, uh, mm. or a warning, but these are self executing contracts. So if you know, you know anything about law, you know, contracts are above the law. Yes. Uh, I mean, for, you know, you can enter into a contract that would be prohibited by law, but it's still valid uh, under the law uh, because you agreed to it. Right. So, um, you know, this contract establishes your, you know, uh, binding agreement uh, with the person who is essentially harming you. And uh, you're giving them a way out, right? They they can just give you the information that there's no harm, or they can compensate you for the harm, uh, but otherwise they have to uh, reduce, you know, they have to uh, stop doing what they're doing unless they could prove those things. And so, has you know, there so been proof of harm? Very powerful.
0: Has there been proof of harm with the the atmospheric spraying, like with the aerosol spraying? Like, is there actual data out there proving that there is harm? Mm.
1: Well, uh, there would have to be for them to be successful with the NOL. So they're, you know, they're gathering the information. I haven't, um, you know, directly looked into this. Like I have definitely observed um, like trees and such that I hypothesize. For example, uh, like two summers ago in central New York, a very strange thing happened. In the middle of the summer, um, a bunch of uh, certain varieties of maple trees dropped their leaves. And, um, some of them turned, turned yellow and brown. Okay. But this was, you know, like I said, in the middle of the summer and there was, you know, the official explanation, uh, from the, um, state agency that said it was from some kind of mold. But the thing is, it was very dry conditions that summer and the leaves that fell were not moldy. Like they didn't Mm -hmm. have black spots. They weren't all damp and, you know, uh, like falling apart Uh, instead they were bone dry like as if they had a chemical burn on them Mm -hmm. and i strongly suspect that there was some spraying operation that you know resulted in that damage now i didn't go and do chemical testing to see if it matched the kind of things that they're spraying but i imagine that other people have uh you know people i know have definitely done uh soil samples and such and found like high levels of things like barium and strontium uh, and aluminum which are you know reported by various federal agencies and some of these companies as being some of the things they're using in these operations Mm -hmm. i'm actually critical of some of the activists in this space that they don't do more uh you know research uh to find direct evidence um there is also you know like they could look at for example because there's a lot of um People claim that you know these things in the air that they get into people's lungs and can cause respiratory disease. Well, it'd be pretty easy to, you know, cough up some sputum and test it for heavy metals, and someone should should take a look at that. Now, another uh, independent scientist, Clifford Carnicom, uh, mm-hmm. also did gather some significant evidence. Actually, he uh, did a very easy and wise protocol, and other people can do this too. Is that you, he put um, a HEPA filter outdoors. Um, on the days that they were spraying and just ran it so that anything that, that was in the air got stuck in the HEPA filter. And then he could take the HEPA filter and uh, mix it with uh, you know, a solvent and, and then do an analysis on what's in it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and his data is, is all published in the, in the public domain. So, so you know, th- that's the evidence that I am aware of uh, at present, but I, I'm sure there's more to it if I spend some time looking for it.
0: You would appreciate, I read uh, when I was under the wing of um, General Bert Stubblebein. he was a client of mine uh, his last few years when he lived in Panama, and he was, he was feeding me, he was showing me UN documents, and in the UN documents, it was part of Codex Alimentarius, I believe, where mm-hmm. they designated human as a biofilter. I believe it was part of that document because I was reading a bunch of the different documents that he was pulling um, from straight from from the United Nations, how they actually classify different organisms and and the the the. It was nuts because in that, as soon as I saw that, I instantly did like the, the whole cabalistic thing in my mind of like, oh, if, if that's the way that they see human is just as a biofilter, no wonder fluoride can be in the water. No wonder things can be sprayed in the air. Right. Like we're essentially-
1: we're uh, basically
0: livestock. Exactly. Like uh, what are those little robotic- uh sweepers and vacuums that everybody has yeah the rumba the rumba we're we're like the little biological bipedal Roombas for the un
1: <laughs> well you know the the basis of codex is right that we are not competent enough to know what is safe to eat and how to grow food and medicine right. to be safe uh so we have to be you know nannied by the state um, you know, which is how you are with you know a child or a pet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, do you ever get into that with? The, have you gotten into that yet with your law studies about the correct legal designation for yourself?
1: Uh, well, yeah, of course. And and really, it's the same thing. Is that the way that we generally operate until we learn how the system works is. As a minor or an incompetent, right, and that's why we're not allowed to actually have all our natural rights, um, and that's why we're not allowed to manage our estate and you know live in abundance as as we're meant to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have an allowance, and you know the um, the uh, basic uh, what is it universal basic income? That that that's the ultimate you know uh, child allowance. Mm -hmm. essentially, like that they want to manage uh, every uh, man and woman in society, you know, with an allowance like a child.
0: Yes. Yeah. We we are a ward of the state until claimed otherwise, at least from their perspective. So,
1: you know, I mean, I think there's the, the proper term for what we are is, you know, there's different ways to look at it. I mean, there's certainly in the legal system, there may be certain proper terms that you would have to uh, perhaps um, even change your your status to in order to be treated as you are, right? Which is a man or a woman, right? right? A living being, um, you know, on the land, some people say, uh, sovereign Mm -hmm. or a sovereign, you know, is accurate. Not a sovereign citizen, that's a a made up term that the government likes to use to say that you're, uh, you know, we're gonna arrest you anyway. (laughs) But sovereign, uh, you know, is definitely the right term. But you know, you want to in in the legal system, um, you you are a natural person, um, and you'd like to probably be a national rather than a U.S. citizen.
0: Mm -hmm. I've just, you know, the, the person I just bought our RV from. Or got our RV from. He uh, he was telling me his whole process with that, and he's right there. And when I was in Costa Rica, one of the coolest people I knew down there, she went through the whole process of of doing that, and um, it's very involved. <laughs> at least the way they did it. Was no, like, it's
1: not. It's. Uh, I mean, the. I think it's essentially you uh, have an affidavit that first you send to the uh, attorney, uh, sorry, the the secretary of state. And then after they receive it, then you attach the same affidavit to uh, your passport application. Mm-hmm. And then you fill out your passport application a certain way and you get basically that affidavit um, and the not- notice that you sent to the secretary of state, right? Who's in charge of our sort of, uh, you know, status in the country um and then getting the passport which will um encode that status on your identification document that's really all you need to do um to become a a national there's actually in federal law a process of naturalization where Mm -hmm. you can change your nationality at any time and the only requirement is that you basically uh you know have some evidence that you did it so you basically write on a piece of paper, I change my nationality to whatever, and that's all you need by federal law to actually do it. So, but there are plenty of uh, you know folks out there who teach courses and have affidavits that they've used successfully that you can, you know, find out about. Um, you know, Copper Moonshine Stills is this one uh, website, um, and then. There's awesome. I'm in,
0: a... I'm. I'm into stills. I, I. make all these different types of wood-fired contraptions. Yeah. Well,
1: you can. You can buy actual stills, copper uh, stills, um, on the website as well as get instructions on on uh, changing to become a uh, um, a national or a state citizen. But um, the let me just give you the name of the the course because I actually taken this course, and I think it's good. It's called uh, freedomhubs.org. All right. Actually, it's learn.freedomhubs.org. Sorry. And that's uh, a guy named Dan, uh, I think, Metzer, who teaches that. Learn.freedom... Daniel Mentz. So- Sorry, Daniel Metz. Dan- what was Learn, that? What- learn.freedomhubs.org. Oops. Got it. And it's a very thorough uh, course, and um, they provide uh, you know templates for all the documents that you would need, and detailed instructions, and it, beyond just getting the passport. But they they also uh, you know interestingly show uh, video evidence of people uh, in a variety of traffic stops who just give the passport. These people don't have a driver's license. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or necessarily insurance or registration, but they just hand over the passport card to the police and they just, of course, let them go. That's great. Because uh, when you're a you know, U.S. national, then you have your natural rights according to case law.
0: That's wonderful. This is the third time this has flashed in my consciousness in the last week, and so I have to pay attention now.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you that I this is not... For me, in all of the things I've done in law, this has not been a priority for me, although I did you know, go ahead and, and get my long uh, form birth certificate uh, in anticipation of doing it at some point. But I think it's gonna be very, very important to do this now and soon mm. because Once the, you know, digital currency uh, comes in, right, which we all know is coming because, uh, you know, everybody, all the officials have said it uh, to us. We don't know exactly when, but sometime in the future that there's going to be potentially a category system of people. And um, that if you are, you know, a U.S. citizen, most likely you're they're going to have complete control of your account. Right. Uh, whereas if you are a national, I think there's a very good chance that you'll still be able to, um, you know, amass wealth and uh, utilize the system without worrying about your social credit score or those things, because they you're not contracted in once right. you do this. I mean, there's if you take that course, you'll you'll see what all of the um, case law and statute around this that will explain to you why you're protected um, it, or at least much more likely to be protected if you do that uh, with that coming system So I think you know that's that's why I'm making sure that I get this done now before you know it, it might be able that you could still do it after the new system but it might be more difficult or you know nothing is guaranteed so I would say do it now
0: Just for clear, clarification you brought up long form birth certificate how is that different than a normal birth certificate?
1: Well, there's, uh, you know, I mean, anyone can look this up if you go to the issuing agency to get a birth certificate that there are different options. And most people have birth certificates that are, they're not the actual original certificate. They're a certificate of the certificate. Right. And uh, they, don't, they don't give all the information. So what in a long form that it contains the birth information, like it's often called a certificate of live birth might be mm. included in it. So, in other words, like the date and time of the birth, it includes the parents' names um, and that information. That's a long form, and okay. you need that. In- you need that information in order to, to establish um, your your citizenship. Good to know.
0: I'm going to my birth county in January, so I will get that.
1: Excellent. Usually, you know, you can order these things online, and they might take. Like, uh, my, I was, uh, born in New York city. So it was through the New York city health department was the issuing agency and mm-hmm. it took them, uh, about eight weeks right. to, uh, to get it to me.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to be going down there anyway. It's like right next to my parents' house where I'd have to go. So I, I don't think it's all that big of a deal.
1: All right. Well, awesome. Best of luck with that. I'm sure you'll be able to get it and, uh, get through this stuff.
0: Dr. Kaufman, Andy, this has been great. You've been a a real inspiration uh, to me and my journey. I love the way your mind works, the process that you go through with thinking, how thorough you are, and um, I'm going to look into the majority of what you brought up today and get into it, get into it further. This is just a great reminder of where my attention should be. So I thank you so much. And I I look forward to uh, having our paths cross very soon.
1: All right. That sounds great, Christopher. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right. And I'll put all the links to your, to where people can find you in the show notes.
1: Fantastic.
0: All right. We'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: You ought to know well, now You you ought to know by now.
0: I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Uh, he is prolific in uh, in the in the webosphere. <laughs> Check out uh, many of his interviews that he's done. The more like if you go into Rumble and you you go onto Rockfin, they have a lot of his un uncut unfettered um, talks that that he gets into all different types of various subjects. I I really appreciated. The transition of going from talking about the psychology of athletics and then going into psychosomatics um that's something that I will always be interested in. the uh, this is leading up. we have we've had these wonderful discussions with many, many doctors on this podcast. And, um, I believe the majority of them are not practicing anymore as a conventional doctor, but they had the training as such, so they can speak the lingo very well, and so, whether it's Dr. Cowan or Dr. Daniels or Dr. Banks or you know Dr. Moshe Daniel or you know Dr. Kaufman, you can see the similarities of of um let's look at the results of what's actually occurring. And then when somebody makes a claim, let's examine where their claim is actually coming from. Like what is this claim and apply logic and process to claims that are made. This is a way that you can stay very tempered in, um, in actually when people are making offers to you as a top, as Tom Barnett always says, it's all an offer. <laughs> and I, I really like that terminology. Um, very soon here, we're going to have uh, Cal Washington back on from the Empower Movement. Uh, we have some big educational things that are are in the works where uh, myself and uh, Adam Stevens, that's Mr. Permi Bear for for you guys out there, um, we're going to be uh, essentially presenting uh, what I call um, practical innovation, and uh, we're we're going to be doing an educational platform that is essentially constructed by the people that made the empower movement and um, all the uh, the I guess you would say the back of the house of the uh, Tom Barnett plant platform. And so I'm super excited to start that educational process. And uh, the reason why we call it practical innovation, it's innovation that you can use. And <clears throat> it's it's low cost, low input energy innovation. Um, one thing that I had got lost in in the past was uh, all these systems that, Took very, very high level precision to execute. And living in areas where that was next to impossible, um, I decided to give my attention to things that essentially I could accomplish by going to a scrapyard. And in doing that, I became even more innovative because the whole uh, recycle, reuse, repurpose aspect of my consciousness got lit up. And so uh Mr. Bear and I we like the we see everything in like 14 different functions and so that's a that's a function that is a, a tenant of permaculture is multifunction use multi-purpose use to things because if you can use something for mul- multiple purposes then then you're being efficient and the more efficient you are the more you're kind of honoring the land that you're on and so that's what we're going to be bringing to uh the market and that's really exciting for us and the way we're going to do that is we're going to be chronicling um (laughs) the demolition of this mess you see behind me that's all going away people don't don't uh I know nobody will be uh sad about that but this old farmhouse is going to get get gutted and uh we're going to be showing all the little different things that we're doing to make the house um more of like a uh what what I would say is I I want to live the permaculture principles that I was living in Costa Rica. We're going to have a dry toilet system. We'll have both a wet and dry toilet in the house um But we'll have a dry toilet system so we can implement humanure. We're also going to have this whole system with um, doing our compost in our kitchen that is essentially uh, converted directly into worm food down in the basement. Uh, We're going to have aspects of the house that will use torrified wood. We're going to have other aspects of the house that are going to use aircrete as an insulator. I'm going to be installing a rocket mass pellet heater. Um, so, And that rocket mass pellet heater will also be the hot water supply for my bathtub. It won't be the only hot water supply, but it will be a supplemental hot water supply because you don't want to run that thing during the summer if you want a hot bath. So we're just going to be doing lots of really cool things. I have a um, an inverter air condition system that we're going to install that's direct solar to AC, so the summer months, um, we, we can have AC directly from, from our solar panels. We're going to be doing that in the, the old farmhouse and also just ripping out <laughs> everything that's rotten. Uh, this house was not uh, built with uh, that much water management. And we'll chronicle the things that would be actually interesting for you guys. And uh, then we're when it warms up again, we're going to get into some masonry dome action. I hope you guys appreciated the Aircrete Harry um, episode that we did. Uh, that was so much fun for me to talk with him I'm going to have a couple other people that are really into uh, what's known as flying crete, <laughs> flying concrete, and uh, some other innovators in that in that space to show that um, you know, you can become a mason pretty easily. And uh, when you look at the cost per square foot relative to how how long it lasts, how durable the materials are, I think you'll be quite impressed. So we're gonna be bringing all this stuff to market. Mr. Permi and I have a lot of fun together. I'm gonna to be interviewing him, in an in-person interview, which should be awesome. And uh, so I'll introduce Mr. Permi to, to you guys. And uh, yeah, we're gonna partner up with that. So that should be a lot of fun. So I thank you guys so much for all of your uh, super chats that you've sent, the donations. Um, if if you like what i'm sharing uh please donate uh, if you if it's easy for you i've been doing a lot of celestic profiles um and people are really uh, resonating with them so at some point i'll put a page up on the website that describes the celestic profile what it is how it differs from other astrological readings and um And then I'll have like a a sign-up sheet for that. So um, I'm not quite ready for that to be big time yet. (laughs) I have my uh, hands in a lot of different, um, uh, or I'm spinning lots of different plates right now. So thank you guys so much. There's going to be a series of different interviews that are coming out uh, between, um, I believe by the time this comes out, we will have um Sharon and Brandon of the over Sharon show I believe that they are going to be uh have a what type of pod would that be it was almost like a a pod about the chronology of my cosmology (laughs) I guess that's a cool way of saying it uh that's we're going to bring that out because I do talk to most people about their cosmology And uh, this is a way in which you guys can kind of see the genesis of um, how I've gotten to where I'm at at the moment. And um, then we also did another one. Um, Let me see. That one is right here. I actually have that in the queue. Um, Yeah. That's just a, uh, geez, I feel I'm sort of embarrassed right now. I'm forgetting. George Hardwick. So George and I did one, and that was awesome. That flowed, it was snappy, and that really gets into uh, the cosmology also. So those should be coming to market pretty soon here. Please like, share, do all the things that you can. Um, give me feedback in the chat. Join the Telegram chat. It's a lot of fun if you're not on Telegram. Uh, get with it. Telegram was awesome. Uh, I also have an audio only if you're consuming this only on video but want audio only. I do audio only on Podbean and um, I believe Podbean is still distributing to uh, Spotify, but I have to check on that. And um, yeah, and then also Telegram has an audio only also. So once again, you guys are great, the the super chats, the, like, I mean, come on, who who gets a Fashies from their fans? Like, that's just awesome. So uh, you guys have been great. I love y'all, and I look forward to hearing from you and talking with you soon.